Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft. Coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening. We are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. Uh, We are in chapter 15, moving along here. So if you want to grab your Bibles and open those up to chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. In chapter 15, my friends, of the book of Exodus, we have Israel's first really great affirmation of faith expressed in what but song. As some have called it, the book of Exodus chapter 15 is about the song of the sea or song at the sea, the song that speaks to the the deliverance of the Israelites and the defeat of the Egyptians. Huh? Uh, This really is the occasion of the song in Exodus chapter 15. The mood of the song, my friends, is triumphant, huh? The song is a description of the power of God as Israel's defender, as evidenced in the destruction of the Egyptian army, of course, and in the deliverance of Israel by means of the Red Sea. The structure of Exodus 15 is as follows. Verses 1 to 21 contain this song of the sea where verses 22 to 27 describe the incident at Marah, occasioned by thirst of the Israelites and the bitter water which they found there ultimately made sweet. And there's an interesting juxtaposition there that I hope to get into by the end of uh, this evening. Now, generally speaking, the structure of the song is twofold. What God had done for Israel by drowning the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and in verses 13 to 21, what God will therefore surely do for Israel in the future, okay? So there's this kind of looking back and looking forward that this song is caught up in, and that's another point to be had that we'll get into for sure. All right, so in the opening verse we read, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. So off the top here, consider the importance of the first person pronouns, right? I will sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength. So yes, Israel is a nation. Yes, Israel is about the we. But in order for the we, the nation, to make sense, the I, the my, must take possession of what is rightfully theirs. Faith. Their faith in God. Okay? You have heard me speak to the importance of this fact that we have been baptized into the mystical body of Christ. That each and every one of us have a place in this mystical body. That yes, the body of Christ is about the we, but it is about also the I and the my. If we are ever going to live for other in the we, we must first be in God. 
we must first enter into that I-thou relationship. All right, that being said, with dramatic, poetic strokes, the event which just occurred in the midst of the Red Sea is what is described in this song. While natural forces are employed, they are seen as miraculous events brought about by the direct intervention and involvement of God. In chapter 15, verse 4, the Lord is said to have hurled the Egyptians into the sea. In verse 5, they sank to the depths like a stone. The winds are described as coming from the nostrils of God. The waters congealed so as to pile up like a wall, we read in chapter 15, verse 8. So my friends, God's sovereignty is evidenced by his control over the forces of nature, the winds, and by his ability as the creator to cause nature to act, well, unnaturally. The congealing of the water so as to pile up like a wall. Poetry describes drama, right? And of course, this is what this song is about. In verses 9 and 10, the sovereignty of God is seen in his ability to prevail as a mighty warrior. So God is Savior, he is King, he is Redeemer, and he is also warrior. Warrior over the Egyptians, the mightiest army on the face of the earth. The Egyptians who arrogantly pursued the Israelites, confident of victory. In spite of their power, in spite of their supposed confidence, God simply blew them away, literally and figuratively, right? Causing them to sink like lead into the sea, verse 10 we read. In verses 11 and 12 we read, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And here's that all-important verse we've read again and again. You stretched out your right hand. You stretched out your right hand. A sign of God's covenant love, oh, by the way. And the earth swallowed them. So here, the greatness and goodness of God are recognized by the Israelites as they reflect on God's victory over the Egyptians. Now, what's interesting here is that the conclusions which this song reveals is that they are the same as those purposes God has already stated in the book of Exodus, right? Which is to say, what God intended for his people to learn from the miracles of Exodus is exactly what they concluded as indicated in the song which they sang. Hmm? Rightly, the Israelites saw the plagues and their passing through the Red Sea as a, as a beginning. God did not just promise to release the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. He promised to bring them into the promised land of Canaan. In one sense, the whole Exodus event was somewhat of a secondary matter, right? A means for his people to possess the land of Canaan. We have gone back to Exodus chapter 6, verses uh, 6 to 8 several times, and we will uh, again here because it's a reminder of what the Exodus event is all about. We read there in chapter 6, verses 6 and following, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, 
and will redeem you, there it is again, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. By the way, my friends, just by way of footnote, I intend to dwell on this matter in greater detail down the road, how the whole Exodus event is about what takes place on Sinai, the place where we come to understand the interweaving of freedom, law, and ethics. As Benedict XVI would remind us, <laughs> Mount Sinai is more than just a pit stop for refreshment. No. Something very, very important takes place there. All right, that being said, as one might anticipate, verse 13 begins with a kind of summary statement, really, of what God has yet to accomplish for his people. Out of his unfailing love, he will lead his people, whom he has just what? Redeemed into his holy dwelling. This holy dwelling, the the place of encounter, which anticipates, of course, Sinai, the holy mountain, and even the greater encounter that awaits in the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, of which, of course, prefigures the great holy mountain, the great temple, which is the church. All right, now, the hope expressed in verse 13 will no doubt require the defeat of Israel's enemies, of course, the Canaanites, who will resist their entrance and possession of the land. The means of accomplishing this are viewed as as the same as those used to deliver her from Egypt and the Egyptian army. There is a play on words evident in the second half of the Song of the Sea, which takes up some of the same expressions or imagery employed to describe the defeat of the Egyptians and how in the actual song they're used to apply to the defeat of the Canaanites. For example, the Egyptian soldiers were said to have sunk like a stone in the Red Sea. Now the terrified Canaanites are prophesied to become as still as a stone. As the arm of the Lord enabled Israel to pass through the Red Sea, so the Israelites will pass through the Canaanites. What is the point to be had here? Well, this song was an affirmation of faith, an expression of confidence in God. You can hear the confidence mounting in this song. God did this to the Egyptians. He will do that to the Canaanites, right? Now, we're not to verses 22 to 27 yet, so there's still confidence here, huh? (laughs) So it is, verses 17 and 18 conclude with a confident affirmation that God will bring his people into the promised land where he will plant them on his holy mountain. We read in verses 17 to 18, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Beautiful. In verses 19 and 20, The hymn turns from poetry to prose. And there we are reminded that both the men and the women seem to have sung their own parts in this marvelous hymn of praise. Verses 19 and following we read, 
For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Oh, did you catch that? What was verse 1? The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. See, God has come full circle in this song. Interesting. I love this, what's going on in this hymn. You have men and women singing, dancing. Oh, the harmony of both the masculine and the feminine. I was just at a gathering where men and women were singing. The women were harmonizing. It was so beautiful. It was so engaging. Ah, the complementarity of male and female. What does complementarity mean? Well, what do you think about when you hear that word complementarity or, or complementary? Maybe complementary colors. What is complementary is what brings the opposite out to their best advantage, right? In this case, when you have the male and female singing in their harmony, in their praise, in their dancing, you have the full bloom of anthropology praising God. And I love that. I love that. Now, the Song of the Sea reveals, I think, also the great significance the Exodus event had for the one who had passed through the sea. But what value does this event have for others? Is the Exodus and the passing of Israel through the Red Sea only dull history, something that is unrelated to our lives? Well, you know that's not true. Far from it. The Exodus is a theme which permeates really the whole of the Old Testament, if not the Bible. For saints of every age, the Exodus is both a prototype and prophecy of the future redemption of God. All throughout the Old and New, there's allusions to what took place during the, the Exodus through the Red Sea. In Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, in the crossing of the Jordan, there is a decided parallel to the crossing of the Red Sea. The story of Israel's exodus and portion of the Song of the Sea are frequently quoted in the Psalms. The exodus was, in the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament Gospels, a prototype of the greatest redemption of all, of course. The redemption of men's souls from the bondage to sin, which was accomplished by, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, where, as Luke chapter 9, verse 31 reminds us, was the departure which Jesus was discussing with his disciples. Departure coming from the Greek word uh, exodus. In the book of Revelation, the deliverance of Israel, as depicted in the Song of the Sea, was seen as typical or symbolic of the deliverance of the tribulation of the saints in Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, biblical history is not written to put us to sleep with irrelevant details. Quite the opposite, it is written in order to provide our faith with historical roots. Israel's hope regarding the future was rooted in their experience in history. 
one that they were made to remember by way of ritually, ritually memorializing what took place, of course, in the Passover, but also by song, songs that were sung during Passover. So Israel's hope, again, regarding the future was rooted in their experience in history through the plagues and their passing through the Red Sea. So too, in a manner of speaking, our future is based upon God's action in the past, both in our experiences and in the experiences of those who have lived. The Old Testament is a rich source of Jewish faith building history which assures us of what God can do based upon our knowledge of what God has already done. This, of course, assumes that we read the Old Testament with what? But faith. Believing that these events did happen. Now, the song of the sea and the Exodus experience, which it describes, is also I think, an excellent illustration of a principle that is taught in the New Testament, specifically Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and following. There we read, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Here, my friends, Paul is teaching. Paul is teaching us that the joy of the Christian remains and even grows in the midst of trials and tribulations. How, though, you ask? That's a fair question. Well, the more difficult things become, the more faith is put to the test the more attested faith proves to be legitimate and living, the more hope we have for the future, thus giving us even greater confidence in the future. Remember, confidence comes from the Latin confidere, to, to, to be with faith, to have trust. Uh, fidere is, is faithfulness, trust, huh? trust. Israel came to know God in a greater way as a result of the trials and testing that they experienced in Egypt and in the wilderness. We too come to know God more intimately and more fully in the midst of the trials which he leads us through. And when we pass through these trials, we look to the future fulfillment of God's promises as even more certain. Having experienced his faithfulness in tough times of our lives. In John Paul II's letter on human suffering, he makes the point that, yeah, there is no one universal answer to suffering. Well, there's all kinds of suffering, he says. And there's no one antidote, per se, other than (laughs) the answer, capital A, Jesus Christ, the presence of God. John Paul II says, the only answer is Christ himself. Christ himself is a response to the question. The question about our humanity, our suffering. And as we look upon that answer on the cross, he says to us, reaching out to us, let me show you the meaning of your suffering. Hmm? All right, let us move forward 
and onward to Israel's protests at the waters of Marah in verses 22 to 27. My friends, the Song of the Sea were not, was not written to be sung once. Perhaps the Israelites continued to sing the song as they traveled on their way from the shores of the Red Sea, entering into the desert of Shur. For three days they found no water. Citing the waters at Marah must have brought great rejoicing to the Israelites. Their thirst, they thought, would be quenched. Their cattle could be watered and their reserves replenished. What a disappointment it must have been to discover that the waters were bitter and then, of course, unfit for consumption. Their joy at discovering water turned quickly to anger at Moses for leading them to such a place and and catch what I just said, huh? Anger is the byproduct of expectation, right? Expectation leads to uh, disappointment. Disappointment leads to resentment. And resentment gives birth to anger. So there's expectation there. Again, their joy of discovering water turns quickly on them to anger because of expectation. How could Moses have bungled this matter so badly, they probably thought. And of course, they did not hesitate to place the responsibility for this blunder squarely on the shoulder of their great leader who just split the waters, oh, by the way. Moses, they demanded, you must come up with a solution. So it is, he did, right? (laughs) Because he's their chieftain. He's their mediator. He cries out to the Lord, who showed him a piece of wood, interestingly enough, which he cast into the water, causing it to become sweet. Brothers and sisters, no one knows of any wood which could produce the result which is here described in these verses, verses 22 to 27. The transformation of the waters of Marah, which, oh, by the way, in the Hebrew, Marah means bitter, was a miracle. (laughs) The casting of the wood into the water probably reminded them of what but Moses raising his staff over the waters of the Red Sea. And could we not say another great anticipation of the wood of the cross becoming the great source of life-giving waters, transforming anything that is bitter into something that is sweet, even the worst day in human history into something that is good, right? Good Friday. Friends, the incident at Marah, no doubt, was designed as a test of Israel's faith, as we read it in verse 25, and as a teaching tool in verse 26. By Israel's protest against Moses, the people had revealed their lack of faith and hardness of heart. Now, wait a second, Joe. Were we not just speaking to the great faith of the Israelites? What the heck is going on here? Our faith is about the daily grind. No. The daily waking up and praising God is what our faith is about. And it is that which makes the daily grind make sense. (laughs) Which leads me to our final point. While this chapter appears to have two very distinct accounts, there is good reason for the fact that Moses has placed them side by side. You see, the The Israelites failed to see the relationship between the affirmation of their faith and their worship and the application of their faith in their daily walk. 
I mean, Israel had just proclaimed her faith in God as her warrior, but she was unable to trust in God as her waterer. <laughs> that God could handle a problem with the water at Marah should not come as any surprise. After all, God had delivered Israel and destroyed the Egyptians by means of controlling what but water in the Red Sea. The winds caused the waters to part. God was able to make the waters congeal so that there were walls of water on both sides of the Israelites. God caused the waters to close in upon the Egyptian army, drowning them all. So if God could deal with the waters of the Red Sea, surely he could be trusted to deal with the waters of Marah. Israel should have been able to apply the faith she affirmed in the Song of the Sea to her dilemma at the waters of Marah, but she did not. What is the lesson here? When we gather to worship God, we might not sing the Song of the Sea, but we do sing many hymns, many choruses which express our faith in God. Maybe here I am, Lord, and yet, Right after we sing that song, we go on our way and we refuse to be present to God, fretting and worrying about the petty details of our lives. You know, one of the contributing factors to our failure to apply our faith in our daily walk is that we tend to create false distinctions between those areas which are sacred, the church we go to, the parish we go to, how we worship, and those which are secular you know, work and daily living. The result is that we think of our faith as relevant to our devotional activities, but not to our daily activities, which for some reason aren't supposed to be devotional. Brothers and sisters, certainly God distinguishes between those matters which are holy and those which are profane, but not between those matters which are sacred and those which are secular. A more careful look at the law of Moses will reveal that Israel's faith was to govern and guide them in the minutia of their daily life. Everything that we do in our worship is to form and inform everything that we do outside of that worship, that what we do outside of that worship becomes worship itself. This is what Paul wants us to see in chapter 12 of his letter to Rome. Let your lives be a holy and acceptable offering, which is your spiritual worship. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you.